Good day, fellow explorers. This is what we have for you on today's Impact Everywhere podcast. I was actually like really excited when I heard that response because I was just like, if there's pushback to this, I'm actually going in the right direction. I want people to feel uncomfortable and for people to really see a new perspective in this, especially if it allows the Muslim and Jewish communities to come together at the table and eat from the same plate. To me, that was really powerful. That's how I envisioned it. And I wondered like, if this can be done, then this can allow for a lot of conversations between the Muslim and Jewish community to happen for food to be at the center, but to also be put aside when people begin to realize like, oh, okay, if kosher and halal can come together, what other aspects of our culture, of our traditions can come together so that we can solve these bigger problems in front of us? Hello, friends, and welcome to Impact Everywhere, the podcast that looks for people having a positive impact in unexpected places. Our guest today is Mohamed Modaris, and he is an award-winning social entrepreneur, TED resident, and NPR How I Built This Fellow. I discovered Mohamed through my green card lawyer. I was trying to figure out whether or not our compost was halal, depending on how the compost was made for an art project that I was trying to pitch all the way in Malaysia. And Mohamed was tagged to this thread just to help me answer my question. So we hopped onto a conversation and I instantly realized not only how much knowledge he had, but how cool he was as a human being. Mohammed is a founder of Abe's Eats and their slogan is building a longer table, not a taller fence. And I think it does a really great job of summarizing their entire ethos of gathering people together through the medium of food. And in order to do that, they support local farms, they offer interfaith foods, and they promote regenerative agricultural practices in order to rebuild soil to combat climate change. How cool is that? Some of their flagship products include honey, hummus, as well as an interfaith meat that is both kosher and halal. In today's episode, we explore far more than just the products themselves, but the entire philosophy behind how Muhammad thinks about interactions within the world on how we can bring people together in order to resolve conflicts and differences of opinions, which honestly, I think we can all agree is something that the world really needs a little bit more of. With that being said, this is Mohammed, and here he is talking about how he grew up as a kid. I spent quite a bit of time as as a kid illustrating a lot of the social, a lot of the economic issues that I found relevant for the audience around me. And as a political cartoonist, you have to produce a lot of content very quickly. And so you have to narrate through this illustration something that really has a lot of emotion to the viewer. And so I would produce illustrations about the Abu Ghraib prison scandal or about Gaddafi or 9-11 or Columbine, things that were very intense, I think, for my age. But I really wanted to get a message out about these particular issues and how to be able to combat them uh, accordingly. And so over time, I think when you're in this space, you begin to see the cracks in the road in front of you. And you think about the things that drive people and how you can help them work with others to solve the problem. And so Abe's Eats, which it evolved into when it was originally Abe's Meats, was really because of what was happening in 2016. When I say the rise in anti-Semitism, it it rose by about 57% by ADL stats and anti-Muslim bigotry jumped about 91%. And so I wanted to bring my Muslim and Jewish friends together and to talk about how we can collectively work together, make our minority status, if you will, a larger group and to have a more significant impact within this movement. 
And when I brought the communities together, the biggest question was, hey, I can't have dinner at your place because it's not halal. I can't have dinner at your place because I need glut kosher. And despite the fact that I grew up in a Muslim household and we always ate halal food, I had never really thought about the differences between each and the process that it took to make a food glut kosher, make a food, you know, zabia halal. And so I began taking this journey of how do we create more inclusive spaces, not only just food, but programming, not only just programming, but even the UX of a website, right? kind of going through this process of trying to see from very different perspectives and angles, which is why now with Apes Eats, not only is it about the food product, which is very much on and off because of what COVID has done to so many people in the food industry, but also about the programming. How do we create programming that allows the Muslim and Jewish communities from different demographics, different denominations, to be able to interact and learn from each other. So it first started off with these dinners, which we call Shabbat Salam, a play on words of Shabbat Shalom and Salam Alaikum. But then it evolved into a bus tour that we did across Brooklyn and Manhattan for a lot of people to be able to see that New York is built on the Muslim and the Jewish communities. It's built on these immigrant communities. And so we made food stops, but we also made a lot of stops in different monuments and spaces where people could tell their stories. And we had a comedy show called Cut the Beef and having Muslim and Jewish comedians. So over time, especially now as we've gone virtual and we've hosted a couple different programs with various partners, it has been an evolution just like anything else. But the most important thing is understanding that our humanity is bound up in yours and making sure that it's driven by, I think, the triple bottom line which is not just the economic impact to make sure that something is sustainable, but also the social and the environmental impact. And that's, it's a challenge, you know, every day it's a challenge, but it's helped us as an organization evolve accordingly. Okay, wait a minute. So you shifted from political cartoonist to now doing these crazy convenings of people of diverse backgrounds. Let's just go down to this food thing. What is the difference for those who aren't familiar with it? What is the difference between halal and kosher? when you really boil it down? For me, when I was looking at the production process as an outsider, despite the fact that I was eating halal food for quite some time, my immediate thought was, whoa, how has this process not come together? Because when you boil it down, the most important aspect of supply chain is from the start of the animal's life up until its sacrifice. And for kosher, it's the sacrifice up until it gets to your dinner table. And what I mean by that is, let's say you have a ram or a goat or a cattle. In Islam, that cattle must be treated with utmost respect in the sense that it must have not only grass-fed, but grass-finished. It should have no hormones. It should have no antibiotics. It should be cage-free. It should be pasture-raised. Not only that, but from an ecological perspective, it should follow regenerative agriculture. As far as it being locally sourced, it needs to be under that 500-mile radius. Of course, in religious context, you don't have those numbers. But over time, that's what people associate it as. And then from the kosher standpoint, that moment of sacrifice is really important. How it's done. The fact that there's no stunning, which a lot of, unfortunately, large factory farms, that's all they do. From a religious standpoint, you have someone who oversees it who says, certain words that are really important within the Jewish faith. 
the fact that a, a very particular, what's called a khalef knife is used, it's checked, it's washed, a horizontal cut is made so that, that the animal goes unconscious very quickly. And therefore, it offers the least pain possible. And when it then goes into the production aspect of becoming meat, that there's inspections done to make sure that the animal was healthy and that it lived pretty much the life that under Islamic standards would be viable, which is that it's it was cage-free, it had food that was very healthy, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And there are some aspects of these two supply chains that are also not necessarily religious. They're cultural, but they've been going on for so long that they turn religious. And what I mean by that is take, for example, the kosher salting process, which I've found to be so fascinating. Like it's the salting, the koshering is seen as religious. But if you think about it, the reason why this was going on thousands of years ago was because there was no refrigeration. So this was more of a public health perspective than a religious one. And despite the fact that there's refrigeration now, people still salt. And of course, it's also to make sure that the meat itself is clean of other types of fluids and whatnot, that it's shellfishery, all those things, as it's being packaged and sent to the home of someone who is observant to kosher or to halal. So there are many more steps once you combine the two, but I think when you combine the two, you're actually following a much safer, a much healthier product because it takes into account the ecological health, the public health, and it also respects both faiths very accordingly. You know, I have to admit that listening to this conversation is a little hard because I'm personally a vegan and, and there's so much within the animal rights side of it, but the sustainability side that makes it quite hard. But I do see the value of leveraging culture to bring people together. And what you've essentially done through the work that you do with creating, actually, why don't we go into that real quick? Why don't you tell me what it took to create a meat that was both halal and kosher and probably also touch upon why that hasn't been done before? Yeah. So I guess just in regards to your comment, I was a vegetarian for roughly four and a half, five years. I was a vegan for about two years. My relationship with meat, I think, is a common relationship with most customers who I deal with, actually, is the sense of like, hey, maybe my partner is vegan or maybe, you know, someone in our household is vegan. But if there's someone who wants to have meat, they want to make sure that they have the highest quality meat possible and that it follows an ecological relationship such that it actually helps the environment and not hurts the environment. And that's one thing about our food production in general that I think we need to have a larger conversation about is you can actually still be a meat eater and be very good to the environment. And you can be a vegan and be very bad to the environment if you promote monoculture. So it's a tough relationship these days because we just constantly want to do what's right. We want to do what not only is what is right in our own book, but what is ecologically, economically, socially affordable, but also just for us to, to excel and make sure that we're as inclusive as possible. So in regards to the product itself and why I would say it has certain value more so today than in the past and why it's happened for us as Abe's Eats as a company, why it didn't happen before is I don't think we were the first one, first off. 
right? But we were the first one to say that we were because what I've realized is there have been companies that I've spoken to in this industry. I know all of them now at this point, And I know all the, the shochets, essentially the Jewish leader who oversee the food at this point. And when I have these conversations of, hey, like why didn't, you know, you bring kosher and halal together, their immediate answer is, well, it's a very political landscape. And if you were to say something is kosher that is also halal, that could potentially lose the very conservative market within each of those communities. And so for me, the way I think about it is that I have the luxury to kind of be the Tesla in this industry, right? Where I'm starting off and I'm not going and making a mix of hybrid cars. I'm just doing one way. And because I'm doing that one way and my brand is known as producing this particular type of, I can actually kind of bypass that heat that if a very traditional kosher company or halal company was to take on, like it's very difficult for you to produce something this controversial if you've for a generation or two have always produced exclusively halal products or exclusively as kosher products, right? But in my sense, I'm starting off and I'm doing just that. I'm exclusively creating interfaith foods. So not only is that with the meat product, which by the way is very little in percentage of sales for us. We sell far more Honey I Love You products or, you know, Hummus for All of Us products. But the interfaith meat is it's kind of a stepping stone into our customers understanding what we're about in regards to inclusivity and interfaith conversations and how we approach just the type of interfaith work that we're doing. That's awesome. So when you started this thing and you launched it, what was the reception like? Because like you said, it's something that many people probably had never heard of before. And I'm sure there were lots of positive, open-minded people who thought this was a fascinating thing. But then in terms of criticism, this is pretty big behavior change. So how did you deal with that potential social backlash? How did you deal with the need to introduce behavioral change into the conversation? Absolutely. Yeah, it was initially, it was really difficult. I mean, you have to think of it as it's 2000, it's roughly 2015, 2016, the presidential election cycle at that time, a lot of just really ugly language, the rise in anti-Semitism. I had seen a synagogue get vandalized and I wanted to host this dinner. Everybody who wanted to be part of Shabbat Salam was very much on board with the programming that we wanted to do. But when I wanted to go and produce this interfaith meet, I got backlash from a lot of religious figures. And my pushback to them, I was trying to figure out like, hey, I've done all this research, right? And everything tells me that actually what I'm doing is right. What's all the negativity about? And my response from both sides, which I just found so fascinating, right? Whether it was a rabbi, whether it was an imam, was we just don't want to take away the one thing that's left. This is embedded. This is rooted in our faith. And nobody questions this anymore. And here you are coming and you're causing some trouble. And for me, I was actually like really excited when I heard that response because I was just like, if there's pushback to this, I'm actually going in the right direction. I want people to feel uncomfortable and for people to really see a new perspective in this, especially if it allows the Muslim and Jewish communities to come together at the table and eat from the same plate. To me, that was really powerful. That's how I envisioned it. And I wondered if this can be done, then this can allow for a lot of conversations between the Muslim and Jewish community to happen 
for food to be at the center, but to also be put aside when people begin to realize like, oh, okay, if kosher and halal can come together, what other aspects of our culture, of our traditions can come together so that we can solve these bigger problems in front of us? And going down that road, finally, it took me about a year and a half of building partnerships, relationships to host this first Shabbat Salam dinner. And once we did that in San Francisco, then we hosted another one and another one. And all of them have since sold out. We've never had an issue bringing people into our events to host these programs. One night, it may be about the commonalities in music. Another night, it may be commonalities in visual arts. It may be sing-alongs. We had a Shabbat Salam show tunes. Uh, and ultimately, that programming was about just the commonalities in sound, in language. And so we've really evolved our programming to be able to match a lot of the conversations that we will have in the prior dinners. And it's really about getting people to see a new perspective so that when that event ends and they go home, they really begin to think about just the commonalities that exist within the cultures and how it's not just halal or kosher, but it's about, oh, how did I grow up and how is that similar to another person? And how can I bring that and share that at the table so that we can build something bigger. I love that. It sounds like a really beautiful mission that has attracted people from all walks of life. I'm curious, how do you measure success for something like this? And how do you ensure that creating something like this can spread beyond your walls? Because ultimately, for an idea to truly take root and embed itself into culture, it needs to grow beyond just the events that you yourself can host alone, right? Absolutely. I mean, that's one of the hardest things, right? You can send out the surveys and get the results and sell the tickets and build these partnerships, but how do you measure social impact? And I think for me, while we've tried to do a variety of different ways, we'll usually have one person contact us, one, maybe two, <laughs> if, if we're lucky, and they'll get real with us. The first dinner that we hosted, the first Shabbat Salam dinner, there was a person who had constantly emailed me prior to the dinner asking me, hey, is this glut kosher? Hey, who's the person overseeing the production? Hey, what kitchen are you using? And all very important questions to make sure that it meets their form of, of orthodox dietary laws. And finally, when the dinner ended or programming ended, the young lady came to me and being very orthodox of, of the Jewish faith, she comes to me with her parents and a couple of her siblings and says, hey, like I was the person who asked all these questions about food and I just, you know, wanted to kind of give you some feedback and whatnot. And I was really excited. But my initial question was like, you know, where were you sitting? Because all night we had strategized, if you will, to make sure that a Muslim, a Shia Muslim sits next to a conservative Jewish person who sits next to an atheist, etc. And so she was like, well, that's what I want to talk to you about because we uphold to the type of Jewish faith where we don't usually eat outside of our home because there are very few restaurants that follow glut kosher. And in San Francisco, it's not like in New York. In San Francisco, there's far less of these you know, spaces available to these communities. And they actually had to walk because Shabbat Salam is hosted on Sabbath. And we make sure that we put it in parts of the city where it's accessible to the largest Jewish communities because the Muslims can still drive <laughs> on Friday. And so she was like, to be honest, I'm still trying to process it. I don't know what to think about it today. 
because we spoke to someone who was of a very different faith than us and began questioning certain aspects of our faith. And when they left, I realized that my measurement for success isn't the type where I want people to just be absolutely happy and we spun around in a circle and sang Kumbaya, but rather, is this a space where people will begin to be confronted with other people's fates and will learn from them and will be able to take back something absolutely new so that the next time something happens, the next time there's a rise in bigotry, the next time there's an issue between whether that's the Jewish community, the Muslim community, or now most recently, unfortunately, the Asian American community, how will we be able to look at that situation with a new set of eyes and see not the other, but ourselves and our families? And if we can have that growth within these communities, that's the type of success I'm looking for. Beautiful, beautiful. Every time I hear you tell a story, it seems that you run towards people that disagree with you. Like this willingness to be confronted that you're hoping to cultivate in your spaces is something that you adopt in your personal life. Where does that come from? And what piece of advice do you have for people who maybe, I think, especially in this culture, shy away from any form of confrontation whenever it becomes uncomfortable or inconvenient? I think a lot of times, especially in the startup world, when you're building an organization, too many people think about the end. Oh, I want to become, I don't know, maybe if it's a significant startup, I want to become a unicorn. I want to reach some type of financial status. But really, that process, that's where the growth is happening. And that growing pain is really what allows us to feel most human. And for me, I've just been so fascinated as a young kid. Like once I knew that I could illustrate and that I could illustrate for Newsweek or the New York Times or just a a local community project and be able to share my perspective, that really changed the game for me. And to realize that every person has a valuable story and it comes from a very emotional, very evolving situation of their own that's helping them grow. That's just made me addictive to this whole process. And you can't learn your way into a transformation. You have to do it. So in many ways, here I am thinking about it, of course, right? When you have all these people who want to reject the very notion of you going down this road, but you're realizing if I go down this road, because very few people have, there is immense amounts of growth. And I want to make sure that that I take those steps for my own personal development, but then for the community around me. The journey that I've taken to build out Abe's Eats, similar to the past journeys, whether that was in political cartooning, even in biotechnology, which was you know a past venture that I did in, in the healthcare space, it not only changed me, but it changed my family, it changed the people I worked with, and I think it changed everyone for the better because now we've grown in a new direction and we're able to see things in an entirely new way. Mm. So what's one thing that someone could do differently when they navigate the world that is complicated and often with disagreeing and dissenting opinions? Especially in today's day and age, right? This is the big question, right? Is how do we not only create more inclusive spaces, but how do we welcome each other and do it in such a way where we don't end up in massive disagreements and fights, And I think the biggest learning that I've had in the past couple of years is as I was building out Apes Eats, I lived with a Trump-supporting Republican in Northern California who 
I would say one of the few, you know, this is in Marin County, this is in North Bay of the San Francisco Bay Area. And she voted for Trump. And this is in 2016. She voted for Trump. And I had been very much for Bernie Sanders when the election was not yet gone into the presidential election cycle, but the DNC was still uh, voting and whatnot. And what I realized was that ultimately, after the election process had ended, and we had a lot of time together, I had built a really, really close friend. Here she was, 72-year-old lady, and I was in my 20s from very opposite worlds and from politics to just how we even looked at business to how we looked at family and just very, very different people. And yet, she was the closest friend I had. I mean, we absolutely adored each other. We were best friends. Like we would go out to dinner a few nights a week. You know, she would do my laundry. I'd do the dishes, et cetera, et cetera. And I realized the reason we were still able to get along was because we had time. And that's so hard to tell people who want a quick solution to all of this. But the reality is, if you knock on someone's door today, your neighbor, and you begin to build that relationship and you offer some type of food and you sit down with them. Of course, now COVID even makes things a lot more complicated, right? But if we give ourselves that space and we make that space constant enough where they not only just know us by our first name, but they begin to understand our father's health issue and why my cousin comes on Fridays because he comes from a difficult family and how I need help with XYZ, etc. And they begin to paint the picture of a real person as opposed to, hey, this is someone with this political view and it's a full stop there. You allow for a real relationship to be built. And with my Trump-supporting best friend as a Bernie-supporting interfaith activist, with each passing year, our relationship became stronger and stronger and stronger. And this was the type of person who walked into my room the first week that I was living with her, who said, hey, you know, I just watched this thing on Fox News about ISIS. What do you know about ISIS? Right? And I'm thinking like, oh my God, this is the most <laughs> offensive thing someone has ever told me. But... Every day I stayed and lived with her, every day she was able to see me and begin to realize like, oh, this Muhammad is someone that I can trust, someone that I can speak to, and someone that I can build a relationship with. And so this is unfortunately a very difficult thing to say to anyone because in today's day and age, especially as there's this anti-Asian wave happening right now in San Francisco and LA and New York and, and all of these cities across the United States, the best thing you can do is to go and make sure that your neighbor who identifies as Asian American, first of all, is safe, and that you begin building a relationship that lasts indefinitely, and you begin to see them for who they are. It's tough in this day and age, but this is really the, I see the solution to it. Because every time I've done that, it's only been a very fruitful relationship moving forward that's opened up me to entirely new communities. I love this idea of investing time, getting to know people beyond the surface, beyond the labels that I think we are all given in society today. In a previous conversation that I had with you, you called yourself a social change agent. Can you explain to everyone what that means within the context of society and what you hope to accomplish? I have a tough time attaching myself to labels, but with social impact, 
It's not only the social, but the environmental and the economic as well. I'd, I'd like to think I'm a very like triple bottom line activist in the sense that, hey, it has to involve the economics of something because that's how it stays sustainable. But that's also the language for most of the world with a lot of social activism. And this is something that I really took into consideration with Apes Eats and, and building the community for it is a lot of the activism that happens today doesn't last very long. And it actually doesn't take into consideration a lot of the learnings that, especially in American society, that we could learn from the most successful movements, like, say, civil rights movement. An example I want to go into is when we look at BLM and when we compare it to, let's say, the Montgomery bus boycott, people forget a very important component of the Montgomery bus boycott. And that is... Of course, what Rosa Parks did was incredibly important. And of course, immediately after what Rosa Parks did was immediately important in the sense of boycotting the bus system. But there's also the component that when the boycott happened, there were many, many, many African-American families, those who owned uh, station wagons and cars who raised their hand and said, hey, if we're going to boycott the buses, and we want to make this sustainable and we want it to last hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of days until we finally get what we want. And that's equality. Just in regards to our transportation infrastructure, then we're going to raise our hand and we're going to copy the bus route. And what we're going to do is we're going to pick people up where they would always get picked up by the buses and we're going to pick them up by the car and we'll still charge a ticket. And so what ended up happening was you had essentially a black-led Uber or Lyft or whatever you want to call it, and it allowed the majority of the people who wanted to boycott the system to be able to boycott it successfully without any, how do I say it, inability to not get to work or, or whatnot, right? And that allowed the boycott to last hundreds of days. And so those people who raised their hands and who drove their cars and their station wagons and whatnot, they were social entrepreneurs. They were the ones who allowed the economics of this to work. They were the ones who allowed the social voices to continue to push forward. And that is a really, really important component. So when we go out and we protest on a Saturday and then come Monday morning, we act exactly the way we, we did before any form of activism took place, I think that's a major component that's missing. Because when we talk about activism, activism is to a certain extent it's rooted in a form of sacrifice. Let's say we don't necessarily like a certain company and we decide to boycott their product. Well, we're going to need another initiative to be able to replace that product for us. And a couple years back when people wanted to boycott a particular ride-sharing app and they decided to download another ride-sharing app, that didn't make much of a difference, right? But this is where, as people, we're going to have to see activism in an entirely different light. It's not just about, hey, we're going to protest on Saturday. It's not just about, hey, I'm going to boycott this particular product. It's about how can I see this from a larger narrative landscape so that we can make sure it's sustainable until we get what we want. And that is equality. And that is maybe an ecological agenda. Maybe that's a human rights initiative, whatever it may be. And so if there's any title I want to associate myself with, I would say that yes, it's I am a local economic activist. 
and a social entrepreneur because I'm trying to apply the economics, the environmental, and the social components of all of these things to be able to have successful initiatives. That's beautiful. Thank you for giving that entire backstory as an example. I do think that today we have a lot of performative activism in some way, shape, or form. And I love that sentence, activism is rooted in sacrifice, which I think actually sets us up really nicely. Christine, Amber, I know you guys have been listening to the conversation from the start. I was wondering if you had any thoughts or questions for our dear friend Mohammed over here. Hi, Mohammed. I'm Christine. I love what I'm hearing. And I, I think it's so important what you're doing. And I, as a mom of younger kids, I think it's so important that we bring everybody to the table, figuratively and literally, and extend and further these conversations. And I have two thoughts that I have for you. One is, I'm wondering if you're doing any work with the younger generation. And the second thing is, I am finding that sometimes the younger generation also can get swept up in this quote-unquote cancel culture. And I think that if we lean too far in either direction, we automatically push people away. And I feel like that's not what you're doing. But I think that it's just important that we all understand that it is important to draw the other side of the conversation in because it's only when other people feel seen and heard that they'll actually be open enough to listen to the conversation and, and participate in it. Thank you so much for your question. It's a very, very important conversation. And I hope we can collectively have this conversation as the topic later, because it's one that is constantly on my mind. And the reason why is because what cancel culture does is it does not give us the space to grow as people. And I'll give a very honest story of the past. When I was in high school, homosexuality was seen in a very different light than it is today. And I remember it was roughly the time that like Ellen got her show back <laughs> and there were some people who weren't too happy, right? And I had decided with a friend of mine who is now actually the co-founder for Apes Eats for us to challenge this narrative. And so being very young teens at the time, we went to Bryant Park in New York because that was the closest place we could get to outside of her suburb in Jersey to ask this question of, should a gay couple be parents to young children? And we did a survey. And initially, a couple people came and went, and, and we recorded the conversation and whatnot. But by the end of the night, there ended up being a fight, and police had to come and break people apart. And here we are, 14, 15 years old, and realizing how intense just this one question became in New York City, in Bryant Park. And we ultimately went and took a bus to Virginia and we asked that same question and it was even more intense. But we had the space for people to have these conversations, to not record them and use them later to make someone feel bad about themselves or whatnot, but rather to say, hey, now that 5, 10, 15, 20 years have passed, how have we evolved? And I have pity for the younger community that doesn't have that space because their lives are recorded. And I hope that we have figures who are well-known within our younger generation who will come out and speak about this, who say, hey, look, this was my opinion about, I don't know, about abortion or about gun control or about all these hot topics, and this is how it's evolved. And I think until people who always have that microphone will speak in that way, you're going to be challenged in this respect. 
because I've seen a lot of shaming online and it's unfair. Whether you're going into a more conservative space or whether you're becoming more progressive, it doesn't matter. People should have the space to grow. And the way I have been so far dealing with this is mentorship. What I'm realizing with kids who are in their teens is just because of their emotions and whatnot, a lot of times what ends up happening is those harder conversations that aren't online and aren't recorded, they have it in their head and by themselves, and that's scary. And when you have mentors in their lives saying, hey, you know what? This goes back to the whole AA process too, right? Is you want people around you who say, hey, you're lonely, you're depressed, me too. I raise my hand and this is who I am. And I'm going through this as well and let's go through this together. I've only been able to do that through mentorship, but I hope if we apply some form of technology to it, something where it can be a larger scale, we can eventually build communities around being very vulnerable in this way. Because I know online we're not as likely to have those conversations. That's such a thoughtful response. And I really, I really want to explore this further with you on another occasion, because I think everything that you say is so true and so important. And I remember listening to a woman who was speaking to parents about what kids are going through. And I'll never forget this one quote. She said that kids, they make mistakes and we have to have the grace to allow them to move on and learn from them. And I try to remember that on a daily basis because it's it's not just kids, right? It's as adults too. But thank you so much for your thoughtful response. I'm going to follow up with you. Really appreciate it. Amazing. I love this train of thought, Mo. And part of what I love about Clubhouse is that it is longer form. It allows more space for the gray. It allows opportunity for discourse. And it's a platform that prioritizes listening over speaking because only one person can ever speak at any given time. And so... I'm a little bit hopeful that a platform like Clubhouse may be able to break people a little bit out of their filter bubbles. I don't think it's the be-all, end-all solution, but I'm hoping that it will at least widen the funnel and introduce people to new ideas, new perspectives, especially since we can sense the greater humanity of people through voice rather than just a couple lines of text or a couple tweets. And furthermore, there's also the ephemeral nature of Clubhouse, which by design, I think is quite good because it does allow that sort of exploration of thought and transformation of perspectives. So a little bit of hope there. Amber, did you have a question? Yeah, thanks for bringing me to the stage. Really interesting conversation. And the thoughts that came to mind throughout this room is a lot of the uncomfortableness that comes with solving some of these problems or even having the courage to discuss them comes from a place of not having a really a common language, maybe experiencing the same thing or having this similar values, but calling them different things. And so I would like to ask Muhammad, was it very challenging to bridge that language and sort of get the match values and apples to apples agendas with those two groups? Or was it quite easy? Thanks for your question, Amber. I couldn't agree more. I'll say in regards to getting people to come together, that was very easy getting institutions to come together, that was very hard. And I think this is part of the reason why I'd love to have a larger conversation about this later, is I've found a lot of people to be very spiritual and to be very attached to their definition of faith, but to have a very difficult time with religious institutions. And when you have institutions telling you how to do something and to make things black and white and to make these rules very black and white, 
in a world where very much nearly everything is gray, you have either rejection of those rules or you kind of drag your feet in the process. And so, I guess the language that I've been speaking to a lot of the people who walk into our community is that, hey, this is a space of gray. This is where we accept everyone because we don't know how far to go with one thing or another in regards to this process, whether that's the food or whether that's how we want to do programming or whatnot. And I think what that also has allowed is for people to raise their hands and say, oh, well, what about this? Or I've my whole life I've been thinking about this and now this person introduced something very new to me. And it, it creates very much a space of conversation over presentation, which I think so many people have gone through most of their life with a lot of religious institutions. And so what we're saying is, well, look, we're not any institution per se, but rather we're going to create spaces. And because we have the luxury, right, to create these pop-up spaces and let's be able to take all the good things that we've experienced in our life regarding our own faith or regarding our own ways of tackling certain issues and bring that forward and put behind the stuff that we may not necessarily think applies either in this day and age or just applies in general to who we should be as, as human beings. And with people, that's been the most wonderful experience. I've learned so much from every single guest that we've had. Institutionally, I think that's just the challenge that they themselves are going to have to tackle because they're holding on to, in many respects, certain rules and regulations because it offers them power. And that's the other aspect of institutional development that I think we need to, as, as people talk about, is how do we graciously <laughs> transfer this type of power to the people? And, and so, long story short, not to keep rambling about the same thing, but Amber, every guest that we've had, it's only been open arms. And it's been a lot easier than I thought it would be in, in that respect. All right. Shall we hand the baton over to MCK as the last question here? And then we're going to wrap up. MCK, you're on. Nice seeing you here. What's up, Ben? Yeah, thank you for bringing me up. So I just feel really good about being here. And just, Mo, you just seem like a really incredible leader who speaks with such humility and grace and all that you shared with us today, I mean, I've been taking pages of notes. I know you said that a lot of individuals have been really successful and it's worked really, really well and institutions have been challenging. So which are the ones that actually said, hey, I think we want to do this and we want to support you and we want to find a way. Thanks, MCK. Thanks for your kind words. And thanks to everyone for joining in on this conversation. First off, I also want to say that as activists, as people who are pushing really wonderful agendas forward, everyone seems to be in such just doing such amazing work, always remember that just because something may be a little bit broken doesn't mean it's unfixable. We have a lot of work to do and it's nothing that we can't do with the communities around us. In regards to the communities that have helped me the most, MCK, I mean, I will say that I have had immense support, various interfaith initiatives, whether that may be the Muslim Community Network, whether that may be the Schusterman Foundation, whether that may be East End Temple, I mean, individual temples or, or mosques. And what I find fascinating is that people come out of the blue, it'll, they'll say, hey, I heard about your initiative. There's someone who had come to a dinner or a virtual meeting that we had not too long ago, a couple months ago, and they'll offer their thoughts and we'll build an agenda around that and see if we can create programming around that. I wouldn't say there is 
our program is structured, despite the fact that we've done it so many times. Every time that we do it, we add something new to it. And that newness comes from someone who just decides to join and be part of the team. And I think that's really the most beautiful aspect of, of having a agile and a team that understands what the goals of this initiative are. Interfaith unity and dialogue. We don't know necessarily what that end measurement goal is. We don't define ourselves just by that one product. We're happy that Interfaith Meet continues to be highlighted, but we have a very holistic approach and it allows people, whether they're vegan or not, right, to be able to enter our community and to take on something that is valuable for them, knowing that the end goal being still a question mark. So I think a big conversation that we constantly have within our team that allows that team to grow is this is what you do on the outside circle. This is how you do it a little bit on the inside of that circle. And then even within the circle of circles is this is why you do it. And for each of us, that why is very different. For me, I grew up around the tri-state area, but when 9-11 happened, we lived in a, in a suburb in New Jersey and my mother was assaulted. There was blue paint splattered on her door. I was physically assaulted and never once was I I don't know, looking back on it now, I wasn't sure why I wasn't upset at the people who caused these problems for us, but more so it was when we'd get back up and we'd brush ourselves off, we'd wonder how can we make sure that we create a community where then the next person who may be a little bit more emotionally unstable or what have you doesn't go down this path, doesn't have to face these difficulties. And that form of trying to build a better community, a better one than we had, is something that pushes me forward. And I realize as the team grows and they come from many different parts of the world, it's funny enough because that's the stories that they have. Maybe not my story, but there's something that propels them forward and they want to make sure that they're just building a better environment for the people that they care for. I love that. That was such a good way to bring us into a conclusion over here, Mo. Thank you so much for your time today. This has been such a wonderful conversation and you had so much wisdom to share, not just in what you do, but how you think about the world and how you navigate it. And I think we have so much to learn from you. One last thing before we close here, it's a question that I always like to end on. And that is, if you had a megaphone to the world, what is one thing that you would invite people to do differently? I would just say that as you move forward and you're looking at solving a big problem or a small problem, never compare your, your beginning to someone else's middle. Know that this is your journey as whether you want to call yourself an activist, a social entrepreneur, whatever it is. And, you know, step by step, it's going to be something that is going to help you grow, help your community evolve. And this is what life's about. So best of luck. And thank you all for joining this conversation. Alrighty, folks, that was the one and only Mohammed from Abe's Eats. Definitely check out their website, especially if you live in the United States. Whether you want hummus, honey, or some interfaith meat, Mo guarantees that the products that he puts out into the world are the most sustainably harvested, the most fairly and equitably sourced materials out there. So if you want to support a local business, definitely go check out his website. With that being said, I hope you enjoyed this week's episode. This was another episode done live on Clubhouse and I edited it down from about an hour and a half to the best 45 minutes. If you ever want to join us live on one of these conversations, you definitely can. We host conversations on Monday, Wednesdays, and Saturdays at 1 p.m. Eastern time. Just look for the Impact Everywhere Club. 
or find me at Von Wong over there. As always, if you're looking for show notes or links to anything that we mentioned in this week's episode, you can go find it on impacteverywhere.org. And if you have any questions, comments, or otherwise, hit me up. Send me a DM at Impact Everywhere Podcast. I would love to hear from you. And with that being said, I hope you all have a wonderful week. Stay positive because impact is everywhere. <laughs>